Fate would like to thank Jack Rishison and company for sponsoring this episode of Positive Space. Rishison manufactures all sorts of painting and drawing supplies. That's oils, acrylics, watercolors, pastels, charcoal, you name it. They probably make it. Heck, they even have studio furniture. Make sure to check out Jack Rishison at rishisonart.com. That's R-I-C-H-E-S-O-N-A-R-T.com. Welcome to Positive Space, Conversations and Art Foundations, a production of Foundations in Art, Theory, and Education, also known as FATE. Positive Space is a podcast providing opportunities for those passionate about art foundations to discuss and promote excellence in the development and teaching of college-level foundations in art studio and art history classes. Today, joining us via Skype, we have Libby McFalls, who is the Professor of Art and Art Foundations Coordinator at Columbus State University, which is in Georgia. In addition, she's also the Vice President of Programming at Integrative Teaching International, which we often refer to as ITI. So we're going to unpack all of that. But thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you, Valerie. I appreciate this opportunity. I think it's going to be a good time. Yeah, same, same here. So I guess first things first, maybe you could tell us a little bit about who you are as an artist, you know, sort of like what you make and, and all of that good stuff. Sure. So I'm primarily a two-dimensional artist. I got my start in printmaking, but over the years, I've really kind of evolved into more multimedia, two-dimensional pieces. Something that seems to be a real tie through like a thread throughout all of my work has been storytelling. At times it has uh, reflected oral storytelling, but I really enjoy moments and capturing moments of kind of duality and duplicity uh, of life, juxtaposition of fact and fiction, humor and sorrow. Um, a lot of my work examines issues of loss and family. And I feel that that's a way to kind of deal with the craziness of my own life, but also kind of widening the scope to a more like a, a larger audience, so to speak. That's great. And are you originally from the South or? I am. I was born in Memphis and raised in Knoxville. So I am, I guess, a Tennessee girl. Uh, <laughs> I left Tennessee right after high school. And I've just kind of always been pulled back to the South, mostly because my family resides uh, in the Southeast. They're all still in Tennessee. And then uh, my immediate family, Mike and I, my husband, we were like, we relocated to, to the South in 2007 when we, we ended up in Columbus, Georgia after having been in Farmington, Maine for five years. So. That's right. That's right. It's, it's sort of been a wild journey for you guys both. And so being at Columbus State University, can you talk a little bit about the classes you teach and what even got you into teaching in general? Was it something you always knew that you wanted to do? Well, to be honest, <laughs> yes. I, I always knew that I wanted to, to teach or at least be involved in the process of kind of lifelong learning most of my life. I didn't necessarily know that I would look to higher education at an early age. Uh, those things kind of through a process of elimination, I tried working as artist assistants, working in print shops, galleries, so on and so forth when I was in undergrad and in graduate school. 
And through the process of doing that, it just kind of reinforced the idea that I really wanted to teach. And so fortunately, you know, I, I started teaching within foundations is actually, um, a drawing one class at a community college back in Tennessee after I graduated my MFA. And following that, I just kind of slowly worked the adjunct circuit Uh (laughs) and until I landed a tenure track position at the university of Maine in Farmington. And at that point I was primarily teaching computer-based software classes, like introductory graphic design, 2D design on the computer, things of that nature. I was a traditionally trained printmaker. So when the position opened at at Columbus State University, CSU, it was an ideal fit for me because they wanted someone who could teach printmaking, but could really spend a focus of their time developing what at at that point, um, the Georgia system was calling computer literacy initiative. (laughs) This was back in 2007. (laughs) And they wanted me to take what I had been doing at the University of Maine and and bring that here. And so as I found my place within my current department, I built out from that point, um, which is kind of, I guess, our our 2D design class. It's actually called Art Foundation 2D and Digital. And it works between analog, but mostly the execution of final pieces, so to speak, are completed with Adobe Illustrator or Photoshop because they do serve as a prerequisite for a number of courses, such as animation, graphic design. And since I've been here, I I teach that course um, several times a year. And then I also teach one printmaking class every semester. So that kind of keeps me involved with upper level students as well. Starting in the fall, uh, we'll be launching a first-year seminar course, Art Foundation Art Seminar, and I'm really excited about that class because I think that's going to be the moment that I'm able to engage all of the foundation students at at one time and be able to discuss about building a lifelong um, curiosity, risk-taking, discussing early on in their academic career what does it mean to be a participant, not only within their community here in Columbus, but also within a larger art community. So looking forward, I'll be moving into um, that class. But currently, and over the last, geez, I guess it's been 12 years or so, I've been teaching uh, the 2D and digital and then also printmaking. Oh, wow. This is crazy exciting that this is going to happen in the fall of this new semester course. This, What are you thinking that's going to look like in, in terms of, you know, is it more of like a lecture course or a discussion-based course with readings? And The course is actually part of a larger initiative. We, we have completely redesigned the BFA and the BA at CSU, and it's in the process, hopefully not jinxing myself, of making its way up through the various curriculum committee steps. But assuming that all goes through, that course will be launched in the fall. And so what I envision it looking like um, is really being a discussion-based course that has a large field trip component, uh, bringing in visiting artists into the classroom. And rather than focusing on studio project assignments, they would be fulfilling as part of their studio component just this idea of documentation of ideas and creating a a type of 
of studio-based work ethic, really, for themselves. So that might take the form of just sketchbook. Some of those would be group projects. But we're going to be using How to Steal Like an Artist. Um, That book is kind of like the common read within the classroom. And taking things from there and working on weekly discussions and presentations and things. Oh, wonderful. I love that book. That's that's such an exciting text. And it's also one that's really easy to read. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which is good because when you have a book and you want them to actually enjoy it and read it and talk about it, it's, it's, it's helpful when the, when it, it actually is that kind of a book. Yeah. I think it's a, it'll be a nice way to kind of get everybody on the same level kind of playing field, so to speak. And it's an accessible book, as you said. So it should be, you know, kind of a, a nice place to start. Sure. Well, and, and so will these, um, will this be one course and sort of all the foundation students will take it at the same time? Or are you envisioning there being different sections of this course so that there'll be sort of smaller groups within those courses? Well, it's going to be um, all of the students coming together at one time. So it's going to be between 30 and 40 students. So it is a larger class. Uh, but because it meets twice a week, Some of those classes I'll just be meeting with smaller portions of the students, and then on the off-class periods, they'd all come together. So there's going to be kind of um, moments for me to to have more intimate conversations and build out with certain students on a schedule and then have moments where they're all together. Was this something that you've been working on for a while in terms of wanting this course and kind of seeing it as something that was lacking maybe or something that could be improved upon in terms of y'all's program there? Um, yeah, I think that it's it's answering, hopefully, a, a lot of the things that we've been trying to tighten up. We have, since I came on board as the foundation coordinator in 2012, we have moved into 100% retention rate. And, wow. the, well, within the, the first year into the second year, uh, which is a vast improvement from where we were. And so what, what I've been doing is really focusing on different ways in which that we can build a really tight-knit community amongst the students while also creating opportunities for them to, to really take risks and explore and not feel like everything in a first year has to be assignment-based objectives. This course is going to be the introductory to uh, a session, uh, um, excuse me, a series of four, total of four seminar classes or discussion classes that are going to take place at every grade level. And each each of those courses are going to focus on what we see as different aspects of what becoming a successful artist or at least a creative thinker and community member look like. So by the time they graduate, they have gone through, you know, everything from taxes to presenting work to what are options besides being a practicing studio artist. So I'm I'm kind of getting off track with that, but that's kind of how it's going to fit into what we felt needed to be tightened up in the overall curriculum of uh, the four-year experience here at CSU. So, yep. Well, no, that's 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 really important, and I think something that that maybe is often overlooked is sort of you know how does this foundation thing, how does this experience translate, you know, as students go into their second year, third year, and then, you know, beyond, Um, because sometimes it's easy to have those foundation experiences feel like totally separated from the rest of the curriculum. 
Right. And we're trying, or at least one of my initiatives, Ben, is to take what is working so very well in the first year, year and a half here at CSU and help model the way that we are treating the entire experience so that there is that continuity. Because like you said, it can feel very fractured and separate. We're hoping that that this initiative helps to kind of create that fluidity among the four years. Oh, that's, that's really, really exciting. I mean, wow. So in a year, this will be, you guys will have a new kind of BFA, BA kind of um, curriculum. Yes. But yes, we've been working um, for a while. I kind of took it on as my own personal mission to, to kind of revamp foundations last year after kind of waiting for people to get interested. I just said, you know what, we're going to do it. And um, that led to, as it always does, a snowball of, well, you can't change one thing without it affecting everything. So in in essence, I created a little bit more work for myself, but it's been really rewarding. And actually, I think curriculum work is a little bit fun. (laughs) I'm the same way. I totally nerd out on like goals and objectives and like learning outcomes and just how should I design my syllabi? You know, I can completely get so dorky on stuff like that. Mine is is pretty dorky. Like people (laughs) even said at our last meeting on Friday, they were like, you really went all out on the syllabi design. And I was like, well, you know. We're artists that need to look good. <laughs> There's a visual impression that is occurring. Oh my goodness. That's, that's, that's so, so funny. You know, and I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that this didn't just happen overnight. It's not like last week you said, you know what, I think we need to kind of tweak some stuff and okay, ready, set, go. You know, it doesn't just involve you. It involves your entire group of colleagues, right? It's, it's not just those in, in foundations. And so you also mentioned something that I think is so valuable and something that I, I know that I struggle with at Sam Houston where I am is, you know, I think it's easy to focus on, okay, what's not working? Oh, I, I wish we had this, or I wish we had this many more faculty, or I wish there was, you know, more um, time or that whatever it is. But it, it sounds like you asked yourself the question of like, what is working, you know, and, and what can we really enhance and kind of improve on within the what's working sort of question? Yes, I, I would agree. And I'm sure that you've been in meetings where when when we start to focus, and I'm speaking for myself, on negative aspects or things that aren't working, very often people in the room will become defensive because it it is at times, and I'm even guilty of this, it's, it's difficult to separate yourself from what's happening in the classroom and the overall curriculum and what's maybe best for the curriculum and the students. And I did gather a, a group of faculty who were first genuinely interested in doing this. And we decided to ask, what do people want to see what is working? And we went from it that from that perspective. And we actually had fun at the meetings. <laughs> I mean, it was still a lot of hard work. And and then by the time when we started last September, and then by the time January rolled around, nearly the entire department was involved. It just you know, I'm not, it, you know, it wasn't, not every meeting was, you know, a ton of fun, but it definitely was a more rewarding experience because I think everyone felt as if their points were valid and heard, even when we didn't agree. And mm. I think it was just that shift in perspective and how we decided to approach, like, basically, how do we enhance our strengths and how do we, how do we get the outcomes that we, we know we want? So rather than focusing on what individual classes are doing 
quote unquote wrong. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And that can often go down this rabbit hole of just like sadness and everything just can feel really hopeless really quickly. Like, oh no, well, if we need to change this, this, and this, well, that's just, that's, that's impossible. Or this person won't go for that. Or I can't say that at the meeting. I don't have tenure or, you know, (laughs) whatever it is, um, can feel really risky and it can very quickly become not about the students, which is really what it is about. It can quickly become about departmental politics or how much money the department, you know, other things that are are often out of our control. Yeah. Because those things are always there. And you're right. It is hard to kind of push past that voice in the back of your head saying, oh, I don't know if I should say this. What will be the fallout from that? But yeah. Yeah, it's it's challenging, and and so so your position. You mentioned that, that that you're able to teach foundations, but you're also able to teach within uh, printmaking. So you're able to see like the first year students, and then you're able to see them hopefully down the line when they decide to take printmaking. Correct. You know, I'm just curious. Do you feel like that's something that has enhanced your understanding of kind of like the larger scope of the curriculum at CSU? I think so. Watching some of my colleagues that maybe only teach at the back end of the degree, so to speak, it's difficult sometimes to to really um, help them understand what is happening the first to the to the second year, and not through any fault of their own. Not that they're not interested. It's just that sure. when you're not involved, you're not seeing those students. And the longer you teach, the more trends you become aware of. And by trends, I mean just. Uh, the the gap, the age between myself and the students becomes wider with each passing year. But those things are pretty relevant because you, you realize just how quickly things are changing, even when you think that you do have your pulse on whatever the, the current thing is. So by, by, you know, the reverse, being able to teach seniors and juniors, and, you know, students that are on their way out who are focusing on printmaking it's, it's not only helped me remain connected, you know, on a personal level, I'm able to watch the student grow and evolve. And it is rewarding to see someone, you know, the fall of their freshman year and to kind of see who they grow into the spring of their senior year. But it, it's also helped me keep an eye on, well, what isn't working on the back end of the curriculum? You know, what can we be doing better? Do we have redundancies or the things that can be enhanced? So, I certainly think that that you're right. Like being having my foot in both camps, so to speak, has helped. I think the reason I had the opportunity to do that is when I was hired at CSU, there there was no one overseeing foundations. We did have someone who was hired to teach painting and drawing shortly after I arrived, and that faculty, for a very short term, was overseeing foundations, and and she started the conversation. And in doing so, I realized, oh, wait, I teach, you know, more in foundations than most of my colleagues, and I'm, I'm kind of geeking out on this. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, so when she moved on about a year and a half later, the chair approached me because uh, he knew that I was interested and really invested in it. And he said, and I agreed that we needed to really take a look at what was happening, not only from a retention standpoint, but a development curricular. So I agreed to step into the position and I've I've really enjoyed the role. 
That's so, I mean, that's so exciting to find out this is where I'm supposed to be, you know, or th this is what I'm really into and this is what excites me both in the classroom and beyond. And so in terms of foundations, I'm curious, what does that specifically look like, you know, at your school? I mean, you, you mentioned that you started at CSU without having the coordinator title. And so once you became a coordinator, I'm also sort of curious, how did that change your job on like a day-to-day course load or administrational position. So I'm pretty much going to ask you like 17 questions all in a row right now. <laughs> okay. And I'll try to remember all that. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just like, oh my goodness. I'm clearly way too excited to, to hear all the things. Well, so there, there, obviously there have been a lot of changes to, to my role since I've arrived. The course load that studio teach at CSU are a three, is a three, three. And so with the foundation coordinator position came a one, one course reduction. So I teach a three, two load, which is still quite a bit. <laughs> the problem being that when we take a look at how many students we have versus faculty, we can't at this moment in time afford for me to step out of any more classes and still maintain uh, the course load that we need. But I've been able to have a part-time assistant most semesters who do help me, that does help me with some of the clerical work that I need done, such as running reports or files in order to prepare for meetings and things of that nature. So that's been one way that the department has been able to help me pretty significantly, especially during crunch times. So and I'm forgetting what all 17 of the questions are. Oh yeah, sorry, sorry. Um, so that's really, really helpful because I know that something, you know, in the fate organization we've been working on and are, are very much in the process of is really rethinking what are the what are the guidelines for foundations right. ed education and on the website it, it does have the the standards and the guidelines and those are really really wonderful and I'm so thankful for the folks that spent so much time working on those and submitting all of the information but that's almost 11 years old. Right. Um, and so we're very aware that, you know, there need to be some kind of guidelines. And I think it'll really help, especially in the role of, of the coordinator or the director or whatever it's called at various institutions, because it, there's so much that goes on and the responsibilities are significant. And I think if, if universities have not had that role previously, maybe they're not really aware of exactly right. what do you mean you need a course release or what do you mean this is an administrational position as well as being all these other things. Right. So, and, and luckily my chair at the time had come from a larger institution that had a foundation uh, coordinator. And he actually helped advocate for the one load reduction. And at semesters, when things have been really difficult, they're really busy, I've even received an additional course release. So there have been some years that I have taught a 2-2 load. Part of the justification, at least here at CSU, was made based off of my advising load. I was asked to advise all of our quote-unquote Art Foundation students. So students in that first year, year and a half in the program. And at the time, our numbers weren't too large. Like that wasn't a very big imposition. But over the last two years, it did become quite hard to manage. I had upwards to 100 advisees every semester. Wow. On top of, yeah, like <laughs> curricular work, reports, teaching, class prep, you know, kind of that whole 
everything else we're expected to do. And at that point, the chair and I began discussions with the dean's office and getting some staff, some staff solutions for advising. And beginning this semester, we now are going to have a full-time staff that is going to oversee advising, and I'll just serve as a liaison, and I'll still be on call quite a bit to answer advising questions and, and things of that nature. But this, you know, I feel like my work is being recognized, and the department and I both have really want to see my role move into more of the curriculum development, the things that I have been working on very diligently, but really require more time. And while I, I do like advising students and I like mentoring and spending time with them one-on-one, there's only so many hours in the day. Sure. And so this I'm hoping is going to really help me take what I hope my position to be and the future of Art Foundation a little bit further in the department a little bit more oversight and communication and support for the other faculty teaching in Art Foundation because we'll have adjuncts, and aside from one or two singular meetings, I'm not able to touch base with them as often as I would like. And I would like to be used as a resource for people rather than just, you know, forwarding syllabi and things of that nature. So Sure. Well, that's, that's so wonderful that you feel like what you've been doing is is being seen and being heard and appreciated. I mean, that's that's huge and significant. Congratulations. <laughs> well, I hope. <laughs> but yeah. 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 So yeah, it's, it's, it's I'm very hopeful and and um I'm curious in terms of, you know, one thing that you guys seem to do well within your foundations, which if I'm remembering correctly, you had mentioned 2D foundation and drawing course, is that kind of pushed together or is that? It's, it's not. Um, so our art foundation up to this point and through this academic year has included drawing too. Beginning in the fall, art foundation will no longer include drawing too as a requirement. So our foundation courses uh, are comprised of art foundation, which is explorations of drawing, which I guess is like a drawing one class, um, mm-hmm. art foundation, 2D and digital. So if I guess for people that are listening, it would be like a, a 2D design class executed on the computer with a lot of what I call experimental learning exercises. So getting up out of the seat and doing things that may seem unrelated, but then eventually you're tied into kind of the concepts of the project. We have a 3D insight and it has moved in the past academic year and is continuing to move into more of an interdisciplinary. So some performative work in addition to some of, uh, I guess, more traditional 3D assignments that you would see. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have portfolio review at the end of those cor- those studio courses, and then of course we have art history one and two. And then oh. in the fall, the seminar will be will take the place of the drawing two course. I see. Okay. Okay. Well then, and I I know you mentioned curriculum being something that you're really passionate about and excited about, and it sounds like you've been developing a lot of things there at CSU. And I'm curious, how do you go about assessing the changes you made or the things that are already in place, whether it's projects or whether it's just, okay, how are we doing right now? If you're going to take the temperature of the foundation's program, what's your advice or what are, what is your way of kind of going about that? 
Okay, so actually following the last national fate, <laughs> at that moment, I was really interested in how are we assessing these things? Because I'm sure like at CSU, many people can identify with the idea of teaching observation uh, or the teaching evaluations, excuse me, of not being that informative. And in fact, we have a very low response rate. Just students don't want to complete them. And a lot of the, the questions don't directly apply to what we're doing anyway. So we, I've started coming at that from a couple of different places. One has been the introduction of, of a more robust use and buy-in of rubrics, which allow the students to see exactly what is being assessed. And they are not used uniformly by all faculty. It's, it's been a, a slower process for some people to get on board than others. We're also able to have checkpoints at the portfolio review, which everyone, everyone being the students, submit a portfolio of at least 10 pieces of work. And there are some requirements as far as uh, detailing what those pieces should kind of showcase. And then what you were actually a part of, I guess about a month ago, this was the first year, and I got this idea from West Georgia because Casey McGuire had brought me up to jury their foundation show and then also complete an external review, just like a short assessment and summary of my experience and my evaluation of the exhibition. And I thought, you know, this is a great way to help justify some of the things that, we, that we're trying to put in place and also get a feel for, you know, what's working and what can be improved upon from an outside perspective. So that's another way in which that we are assessing. And then the last piece is that as students kind of rotate out of Art Foundation, I give them all an electronic survey that, that I and some other colleagues have weighed in on pertinent questions that, that, you know, what is it that we want to hear about specifically? And the student response rate has been really high. So I think only it was less than... I think it was something like 97% of all the students that were asked to complete completed it last spring. We asked questions about what could have made the, the experience better, what were memorable moments, what projects, like what, what didn't make sense. Like, <laughs> like if, <laughs> if you get to the end of a, of, a, of a semester and a student isn't sure maybe what a specific project intent was or how a field trip maybe you know, inform the discussion in the classroom. I, I want to know what we could be doing better collectively as a group. So that's, I think, been more informative for the department so that we can, we can start to track what is working and what, what can be improved upon from a student perspective. And oh, that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. And so all those surveys are anonymous from the freshmen as they're about to go on to their next semester? Right. So after they wrap up their, their quote-unquote first year, they're issued that, and I limit the response rate to one per email address, and none of the faculty know who has said what. I mean, at times, you can kind of figure it out, like, you know, right. <laughs> they write their name in the other section. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been good, because sometimes the things that I didn't really think were big impact were big impact, and vice versa. You know, something that I was really excited about, maybe the students were like, yeah, it was okay, <laughs> you know. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's so informative and it's so much more informative. It sounds like than those typical evaluations that, that we have to give them each semester. Right. And they're not, and it's not course specific. 
it's about the first year. And so uh, the student has to have, like I've already pre-screened, like I know any student who's getting it has completed all of the courses. So I've already reviewed their file and they're, and they're being added to the list of the people that receive the, the survey. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. And, and so then you look over that information and then you share that with the entire faculty. Correct. Yes. That's a lot of work. <laughs> it is, but I, I kind of like making forms and stuff. Like I've, I've got like a weird sickness about like actually enjoying doing some type of clerical work. So sure. yeah, anyway, no. but yeah, it's all automated. So once you set up the, the questionnaire, Google does the rest. So. Google is amazing. Yes. What yeah. would we do without Google? <laughs> well, when Google goes away, I'm, I'm going to be screwed. So. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and, and well, another thing, you know, about your, you know, that, that I, I got to experience while I was on your campus, I guess about a month ago was just your facilities are really impressive. And I was blown away by the fact that faculty get private studio spaces. Yes. <laughs> oh my word, Libby. I mean, I'm still like thinking and like daydreaming about when I walked into that space and I was like, are you kidding me? Like all this natural light, the tall ceilings. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, we, we're very fortunate in our department. And that's something that I try to reiterate to the students that you all don't understand. We have really nice facilities. But yes, uh, the, the main art facility was opened in 2007. So we came down for an interview months after it opened. So I have to say part of the reason we moved to Columbus was for the facilities. Sure. Uh, the, the, the private studios that you're speaking of, uh, when, when the main art building, the Corn Center for the Visual Arts was built, each disciplinary area was given a small allocation for studio space for faculty workroom. And the spaces really weren't working very well because we found that we really wanted to, to kind of turn that space over to the students. It also, we, we identified that we wanted senior level or capstone level individual studios for our juniors and seniors. Mm. And so when we were developing and, and our department was putting together grant money or, or writing up, writing for grants, we wanted to develop a building that, that situated adjacent to the, the main facilities, but it had student studios and faculty studios in the same building so that students could see us working. And not only that, they could walk down a hallway and maybe see two or three faculty and at a time. The, the spaces are separate. We can, we can shut the door and lock it if we want to. <laughs> um, and honestly, I, I, I tend to work earlier in the morning, which means that most of the students aren't out of bed yet. So right. um, we're still able to, you know, have some separation, but those studios opened in 2015 or 2016, I believe. And I'll agree when days are hard, if I walk into my studio, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. You know, but so we are very fortunate and it's actually really helped motivate me just to be in the studio and working. I mean, when you have you know, a designated space. It's the same thing that we said when we were justifying space for students. If the students have the space to work, they're more likely to work. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing for the faculty. I think that all of our productivity has increased because we had designated space and not only that nice space, 
So, and it, it has also been good. I mean, it's, it's fun for students to pop in every now and again and, and, and see me working outside of, you know, sitting at my computer, you know, and, and kind of instructing and giving tutorials in a classroom. So. Right. Well, and I, I would imagine that that would also create more of a sense of community among your colleagues as well, because then you can pop into their spaces and see what they're working on and, and they can, they can do the same for you. Yeah, I would, I would even say that the, the, our types of conversations have changed. So before, I mean, when you're seeing someone in an office space, you may ask about their weekends, but more likely than not, we're talking about who has to finish what for some type of meeting. Right. Um, and kind of really focusing on those type of details of the job. And when we're in the studio, the conversations tend to more, be more gradual and, or casual, not gradual, but, um, <laughs> or gradual, maybe, but, um, <laughs> They're more casual, and also it's it's actually fun to hear about what they're doing because it's easy to forget that any of us are doing anything else other than our quote-unquote, you know, committee work and and talking about students and curriculum and things of that nature. So it's it's fun to see what they're producing and what they're researching and what they're thinking about. And I would imagine that it helps to see them as more of like a whole person as well as to be seen as more of a whole person rather than I'm just the one that does X and Y or I'm the person that leads this committee doing yeah, whatever. It's, yeah, it's easy to feel like that, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is. It's yeah, easy to yeah. feel sort of like a robot, you know, or that you're in this corner and this is the only corner I'm allowed to be in. And yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I definitely have had those moments in my career. So I know exactly what you're talking about, and I think probably most people have. And so, yeah, this helps us. It, it reminds us that, that we all, there are many different facets to each of our lives. So, Well, sure. And, and sort of thinking about that, you had mentioned Mike, your, your husband, who is also a professor at CSU and an artist and a maker. And, and I know you guys have a family and, and those kinds of things. And, I mean, has it been challenging to juggle sort of teaching and family roles? I would say short answer, yes. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it has. You know, everybody's always like, oh, well, if you knew what you were getting in, if people knew what they were getting into, maybe they wouldn't have kids or they wouldn't do X or they wouldn't do Y. Yeah, we, we thought we were prepared, but when it came to the time commitment and just kind of what I just refer to as like the craziness of our lives, I had no idea. <laughs> but... It, there, there have been adjustment periods. It's, there are times of the year where it is definitely like time has become the most valuable resource for me. And I thought it was valuable before having kids. And I think it's even more valuable now because it, I feel like most days every minute is accounted for. And so when I got this, the newer studio, the one you were referring to, I really felt like I had to designate and carve out time on my schedule that I was going to be in the studio. And so that, if I'm completely honest, was the thing that I was able to let quote unquote slide short, you know, immediately following our family, you know, starting a family. Mm -hmm. And so it, 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 it was a process and I would still say that everything is a process. I, at moments, I'm spending more time in developing curriculum than I am in doing the other things. But having the kids has also been great because it's helped me keep myself in check and remember because 
I'm the type of person that school could kind of consume my life, right? Thinking about right. things after I left work, and I'm still guilty of doing that, but they've helped me tell myself and actually believe this, this isn't a big deal, Libby. Like, you can deal with it later. This isn't the end of the world. You don't, you know, just because somebody isn't doing it the way you think it should be done. And, you know, all the things that I think come with being an academic. <laughs> oh, definitely. And I mean, I think in that way, we're a little bit similar. And that, I mean, I could definitely lean really comfortably towards being like a workaholic. I mean, hardcore, you know, like I'll just stay up all night to grade this or to make sure I write enough notes in someone's sketchbook. But if I'm going to let one thing slide, hopefully it's not remembering to take a shower, but sometimes it is, but you know, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) But it's going to be me spending time on my own practice, you know, because there's nobody that I'm accountable for except myself, you know, and if, and if I want it, I mean, of course I'm on a tenure track trajectory and all of those kinds of things. So I have goals and objectives, blah, blah, blah. But I, I, I think it's so easy to sort of let yourself slide regardless of what your role is or what your position is. Yeah, I would agree. And I think any type of change in life, no matter if it's having a family or if it's just kind of adjusting your role in your position, I, I think it's invaluable to kind of rethink the way in which that you make and the way in which that you think that your studio practice has to be. And I believe that doing that for myself a few years ago is, I found to be very kind of freeing. (laughs) So what I mean by that is the type of work I had been making was larger in scale. It was very time consuming. And I was actually inspired by a friend of mine, John Swindler, when he said, if you only have 30 minutes to make art, he's like, you just have to make it. And I was like, you know, it was, he was talking to students, but it, it kind of hit me because I was like, he's right. And, and so it, it was, it was a, a time in which that I really had to rethink the way in which I made work. I, I, when getting back to your question about balancing things, I think it really comes down to just rethinking how you believe things have to be done and then being comfortable with adjusting <laughs> what you, what you normally do. Right. And I don't know if you think of it this way, but I mean, I don't really even believe that there's this perfect idealized, everything's in harmony, everything's in balance at all the time, everywhere in my life, you know, or really in anyone's life. I mean, it might look really great on Instagram or it might look really great, you know, when I see someone at whatever, but, but it just, I find that everything's sort of on like a crop rotational thing going on where, okay, maybe this area is working really well. And then this is sort of sliding or I'm kind of waiting on this and focusing on that. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I do not believe that perfect exists. I think that yes. most moments of perfect exist if you're able to kind of like isolate and enjoy them for what they are, you know, things can be going really well at work and then, all of a sudden, like everybody's sick or, I mean, just anything. So no, I I don't think that perfect harmony is, is what I'm ever to obtain. I just say, just do the best I can do, (laughs) you know, but yeah. Well, and I think that's, that's so hard to really let soak in. I think, especially within our culture and within sort of the, the pressures of, I mean, anyone, regardless if you're a woman or a mom or married or whatever your situation is. And then I think about 
all of our students who put so much pressure on themselves to to mix the exact right purple. You know, it's got to be perfect the first time, and I I can't I can't mess this up. Oh no! So you know, I, I'm curious, how do you kind of infuse this philosophy into the classroom in terms of really encouraging students to kind of relax a bit and just enjoy those moments? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that's something that probably everyone struggles with. Personally, if I were to use like my freshman classes as an example, right off from the beginning, I have to tell them that they're going to make something that's going to embarrass them, that they aren't going to want to present, and they're going to have to just push through it. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. That not everything they make is going to be perfect. But just saying those things, I don't think really has the intended impact that you're talking about. And so what I have been doing over the last five or six years and increasing the amount that I do it are using these low-key kind of stake exercises. I call them exercises. I call them ELEs for short for my students, experimental learning exercises, just so that they can kind of categorize them because it seems like the younger the generation gets, the more they want to fit it into a neat box for grading purposes. But they really are kind of quick responses. They have The students will be given a simple assignment to, I don't know if they have to represent what shape would, how would they represent their life in one shape if they had to just boil it down and they have like 10 minutes to do so. And it has to be complex and it has to be meaningful. And they're, they're just these quick things that the students have to do without any type of preamble or example. And then the students have to talk about why they've made choices, not just formal choices, but what was influencing them. And I think that it helps to kind of bring students down to a more empathetic level with one another. They're able to see each other for, you know, the person sitting next to them rather than trying to keep their guard up and look cool, so to speak. Those have been really fun and effective because then we usually roll those into some kind of video, a reading, some type of discussion, talk, and then eventually we get to the quote-unquote project. It's kind of like a thread that develops, kind of like snowballs a little bit with each step. And usually their guards have come down by that point. And at that point, they're willing to take more risks and recognize that person A's solution is not going to be person B's solution. And one's not better than the other. I mean, of course, there are aesthetic differences and things like that. But but to me, it's kind of nice to have that level playing field. Something else that I have started doing is taking the students on one large field trip, the first year students. And this year, we are focusing on di- um, inclusion and diversity in the classroom. So we're going to be going over to Montgomery and taking a look at the Equal Justice Initiative and the museum, taking a look at really the idea of enslavement to mass incarceration. So we're going to be taking a look at the Legacy Museum there. And leading up to that, I'm giving them weekly readings on the role of national historical museums and sites, what those mean culturally, like what is the importance of those And then also from an art perspective, what do those memorials mean and and what role do they play in in an art historical context? Uh, We're also taking a look at locally issues of recorded lynchings that took place in Muskogee County, which is the county in which uh, CSU resides. 
And these are some, you know, difficult conversations to have, but I like the idea of common readings. I like tying the field trips back into, quote unquote, one of the values of the university and one that we're focusing on right now at CSU is the idea of inclusion. And so we're going to take a look at really the disparity between neighborhoods in our city and how those lines are drawn by race and income and how those have been perpetuated over time. So that's kind of a really long off-topic answer. No, no, I really, I find that so interesting and so fascinating because, I mean, the South in particular holds such story and such narrative, but it's also in such opposition and then there's a lot of things that are hidden under the surface that yeah. maybe aren't talked about in a really comfortable way. And so doing that is so important. Yeah. So even though it, it, it they don't all, like the field trip won't tie into each and every project, it, it is kind of the common theme, so to speak, amongst all the art foundation classes. So. All right. Well, I mean, it all yeah. connects to what does it mean to be a person in the world? What does it mean to, <laughs> to, to be alive and breathing? And, and what does it mean to be human? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, those are some of the things I'm doing. And, and oh, we'll that's wonderful. Well, and, and one thing I wanted to touch on is I, I know that you're heavily involved in uh, ITI, Integrative Teaching International. I'm curious how you got involved with that organization and then how you got involved in FADE and how you see those as connected or not connected. Okay. Well, I find that they are deeply intertwined, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I probably am a little bit biased. Even though I was aware of fate and I knew of fate, it wasn't until 2011, I think, when a friend of mine, the faculty I mentioned earlier, who was in this position for about a year, year and a half, asked me to go to a regional fate up at West Georgia. That's when I first met Casey McGuire, Stephanie Smith, people up there. Uh, Aaron Dixon, but they were hosting Connect the Dots, I think it was called. Oh, I almost went to that, but I ended up having some, I mean, it, I, for some reason, thought I could drive there from Texas, which is crazy. <laughs> yeah, that, that seems like a common thing for you. <laughs> I know, I often, I'm like, oh, it's not that far. It's only yeah. 20 hours in the car, no big deal. <laughs> well, for me, it was only about an hour in the car. So <laughs> Why not? And it, even though it was a very small gathering, I was like, oh, wait a second. I was like, there are people out there who were interested in things that I'm interested in and who were starting conversations and having conversations that I want to be involved Mm -hmm. in. And that led to me going to, I think Savannah was the next year, was the very next year possibly. Right, I think so. I don't know. I'm I'm taxing my memory at this point. And it, it was at that point I really kind of picked up some speed as far as actively kind of like following the journals that were coming out, participating more in sessions and presentations. And it was also in Savannah when I first heard of ITI, Integrative Teaching International. And I, and they were standing up saying, oh, y'all come out to Montana. And I was like, what are they talking about? <laughs> and um, I didn't make the first trip out to Montana, but I did make it to the second. And and I just, I really, I have left every fake conference, every think tank or think catalyst with ITI, just really feeling energized and feeling as if there are, that I'm able to connect with people who are interested in the same or similar goals that I'm interested in as far as the type of experiences that we are making for our students, um, ways that we can be doing it 
better, ways that we can take a risk ourselves. I'm always telling my students, take risks. And it's scary as a faculty to take risk. So it makes it less scary to know that you're taking a risk when other people also think that, you know what? Yeah, go out and try it and do it. Um, you know, what's the worst that's going to happen? A, one thing might flop in class. But, um, but generally, the, the outcomes to all of those things far outweigh any type of any type of risk. And so, so my involvement with both of those organizations has really enriched, I think, my, my career. It's enriched my life. Uh, anything from just the, the journals that come out, as I said, but the people that I meet, the connections that I make, and some of the ideas I get. It's just, it's just nice to have a network and to have multiple networks and to have people that you can reach out to at any time and kind of get the pulse on something or get feedback. And so while the ITI, those, those gatherings remain more intimate and smaller by nature. And of course it's not presentations, it's more exchange of idea based and working through problems, as you know, they both, I think ITI and fate complement each other because they're dealing with similar issues, but coming at it from different perspectives, at least the way that the participants are able to be involved. And I think both are invaluable. And, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And plus, I mean, on top of all the things that you articulated very, very well, it's like everyone's just so kind and so fun to be around. And I, I, I just find it to be such a great community of just human beings, you know, uh, that are smart and that are trying things and yeah. that are just reminding me really of what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, which is, is always a good thing to have around. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So, uh, well, Libby, I really appreciate your time today. I know how valuable it is and I, I just really, really appreciate it. And I just think you've given us such good things to think about and just such encouragement, you know, for folks that are thinking about, you know, curriculum changes or are wondering if, if things can ever change or improve within their institution. I mean, I think just sort of how you've walked through the progress that you've experienced at your institution is just so encouraging. Yeah. Well, I thank you for your time. You all are doing great work at FATE, and I am honored to have been part of the podcast, and, and I thank you. Absolutely. I look forward to seeing you in Columbus, Ohio. I'll <laughs> see you there. I am yes. ready to make reservations as soon as the hotel information is ready. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I really appreciate it, Libby. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Positive Space. If you're interested in being part of FATE's ongoing conversation about art foundations, visit the FATE website at foundationsart.org. Don't forget the dash between foundations and art. This episode's interview was conducted by Valerie Powell and was engineered and edited by Raymond Gaddy. Our theme music was provided by Lee Rosevere. If you like what you hear on Positive Space, be sure to give us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is you find your podcast. Better yet, send us some audio. You can call Positive Space at 904-990-FATE. That's 904-990-3283. You may find your voice on the next episode of Positive Space.